If I haven't met you yet, my name's Evan. Please come up and meet me. That's a major reason why I feel like I'm here, is to get to know you guys and feel, just learn who you are and figure out how we can use your giftedness in this setting, in this town, uh, how to support you and what God's called you to do in this time and place that you have been created and placed in. You know, a major reason why the church exists, in my opinion, based on what I read in the Bible, is so that people can get to know one another, and through those relationships, they can then support one another when things are hard. They can encourage one another. They can come alongside one another and just have fun. Uh, and that's going to be a major focus of ours this summer with the Rimrock Downtown community. We're going to have a lot of different opportunities just to play in the Black Hills, whether that's kayaking or climbing or camping in the back of people's yards, barbecuing, right? This is such a beautiful place to live for like four to five months. And so we're going to really take advantage of that. Yeah, so do I. So next week we're going to start promoting specific dates, but just to kind of put that on your mind, if you desire to have a community of people that are focused on Jesus as their Savior and a desire to love God and worship Him, there's going to be a lot of opportunities to get together um, throughout the summer in doing that. All right, so six weeks ago we started a series that we entitled The Character of God and the Propensity of Man. And what we've done in the last six weeks is walked from the book of Joshua all the way about halfway through 1 Kings, looking at about 600 years of Israelite history. And the goal of this series, which we'll finish at the end of May, is to figure out who God is because God does not change, then we can understand more of who he is for us. Along with that, we can also see the commonality of humanity that threads through all, all millennia, and so we can kind of figure out a little bit more of who we are. Um, right now, we're in the midst of the kings and the prophets. You know, so far, we've seen the nation of Israel go from a time of glory and splendor with David and Solomon, and tonight we're going to see that they transitioned to two heaps of burning rubble. With David, the nation of Israel had total dominance over her enemies and expanded its borders considerably. Then his son Solomon takes over, and the borders get even larger, and the wealth of the nation increases incredibly, one of the more wealthier nations during that time. But after Solomon, things begin to crumble. So let's look at some of the passages that will show us this. 1 Kings 11, verses 9 through 13. Then the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this matter, that he should not follow other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your mind, and you have not kept my covenant and my statues that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of your father David, I will not do it in your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hands of your son, Rehoboam. I will not, however, tear away the entire kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And so from chapter 12 of 1 Kings on, we see this divide happen. There's one tribe that ends up Judah, and they swallow up Simeon, and then the ten other tribes to the north are separated from one another. We have the southern kingdom and we have the northern kingdom. And what we see happening over a 300-year period for the northern kingdom 
is them turning entirely away from God. The first king, Jeroboam, sets up two golden calves and two places of worship, and that's what the people bow down to. Right? It makes you think a little bit of Aaron in the wilderness when he erected a golden calf. And so they instantly revert to idolatry. And over a 300-year period, they completely turn away from God. There's not one good king out of the 11 that comes through the northern kingdom. And because of that, we get to 2 Kings 17, 5 through 8. Then the king of Assyria, that's a, northern, a kingdom to the north of the northern kingdom, invaded all the land and came to Samaria. For three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He carried the Israelites away to Assyria. He placed them in Halah, the, on the Haba, the, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They had worshipped the other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the king of Israel had introduced. And the rest, 20, 20 verses that follow this, give play-by-play play of all of the different times that they turned away from God. You know, the southern kingdom did not succumb to to Assyria. They were really close. He had surrounded and taken siege of 46 out of 47 cities. The only one left was Jerusalem, but they cried out to God in 701, and God laid waste to the Assyrian army. So the, North, the southern kingdom continued to live for another two and a, 250 years or so until 586, and we see what happens in 2 Kings 25, 1 through 7. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month of the day of the month, King Nebuchadnezzar, you know that name, of Babylon came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. They built siege works against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine became so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city wall. The king with all the soldiers fled by fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, through the Chaldeans, though the Chaldeans were all around the city. They went in the direction of Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered, deserting him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon and Riblah, who passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, then put out the eyes of Zedekiah. They bound him with fetters, and took him to Babylon. Right? Heavy, intense reading. Now, it's really important to remember that this is history, documented history. Historians, people that witnessed it and were there, and they wrote it out, or they uh, talked to people that had seen it. And so this is actual history that we, we can look at and know what happened. You know, it's... This is a very little, this is hardly ever read through by a lot of Christians. We just kind of stop when we get into the kings. But what we miss out on is so much of God's character. And what happens when we look at this, we see a God who is angry, a God who passes sentence upon his people and just takes them out. And we just kind of walk away assuming that God is temperamental and he's looking to punish his people. But we have to go deeper before we pass those sorts of judgments upon him. You know, the covenant that God, Israel made with God at the base of Mount Sinai was called the suzerainty Covenant. 
Historians have discovered that these types of covenants were quite common in the second millennial BC. It is between a powerful and a less powerful party. The one with more power and resources promises to provide for and protect the weaker party or vassal. That's another term you hear. In order to receive this provision and protection, the vassal pledges its allegiance. Say, I will honor you. I will follow you. I will support you. When it no longer stays true to the more powerful party, it is cut off from all provision and protection. So according to the covenant that God made with Israel, when they stopped worshiping him and obeying his laws, then they would no longer be protected for and provided by him. Very logical, which is what occurred when both kingdoms are exiled. You know, like I said before, when people hear this, they assume that God must be cruel, sitting on his throne, waiting for his people to make the slightest mistake, and bam, judgment. But we got to go deeper. You know, one thing that occurs during this time of rebellion, we're talking like 500 years for the northern kingdom, 350 for the, 350 for the northern kingdom, 500 years for the southern kingdom, is that God continually sends prophets into their midst, telling them, if you don't stop doing this, this will happen. If you don't stop doing this, this will happen. So even though it was done 500 years prior to Jerusalem being taken, God does not give in to common sense. Because with the suzerainty covenant, you stop doing this, we're done. But God continually spoke to them saying, turn away. Turn away. You know, we can see this so clearly in Ezekiel 18, 31 and 32. Ezekiel was kind of post-exile. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, all of you according to your ways, says the Lord God. Repent and then turn from all your transgressions. Otherwise, iniquity will be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed against me and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God. Turn then and live. And you want to know the heart of God towards a rebellious people? He has the death of no one within him. He desires everyone to turn back to him and live. And it's not just in that moment because prophet after prophet after prophet comes in in order to tell them of their sin, to tell them of the judgment that's coming. So that way they would repent, come back to him, and miss out on all the judgment. You know, the amount of time that God gave Israel to repent and the number of prophets that he sends is extremely noteworthy. It speaks volumes about God and his character. That is, he is, that he is, like Moses said in Exodus 34, 6, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. You know, we see a total of like 25 prophets that he sends over those 500 years to try to turn his people back to him. Now, why would a sovereign God who is in control of all things and whose heart is set on bringing his goodness to his people, allow them to go through such hardship. He's sovereign. He can say, this is not going to happen. This is going to happen. And if he has that kind of heart by sending the prophets, why then does he allow Samaria and Jerusalem to be overtaken by such ruthless people? In my opinion, 
when the people are unwilling or unable to learn genuine lessons from others, they have to experience the consequences of their own folly before they can discover wisdom and apply it to their own lives. Think about that with your own life, with your kids' lives. When they are unwilling or you are unwilling to listen to the one with wisdom and time and time again you disobey it, there's a certain point where your own folly, your own foolishness, your own brokenness is what's going to teach you. You know, God kind of hints at this in Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 7. So this is Moses kind of prophesying a good thousand years down the road. When all these things have happened to you, the blessings and the curses, that includes exile, that I have set before you, if you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God and you and your children obey him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, just as I am commanding you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, gathering you from, again from all the people among who the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if you are exiled to the ends of the world, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your ancestors possessed and you will possess it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. That's the Holy Spirit. So you'll have, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul in order that you may live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on the adversaries who took advantage of you. Go back one page, Michael. So notice what starts all this. When these things have happened to you, when I bless you and when I curse you, then you will call upon me. He understands that they need to go through this time of tribulation before they are willing to genuinely seek him. You know, let's move into some application. And this is kind of a little bit unsettling form of of sermon in terms of the application because it's dealing with why do bad things happen to bad people? And it may not relate to you right here in this moment. Maybe the last 15 years you've been great. You know, maybe the next 15 years you will be. But this will give us such a good insight on why people experience hardship when they act certain ways. You know, do the commonality of man, regardless of the millennia, or the culture in which they live and the unchanging nature of God, we do go through these sort of things. You know, we are not underneath the same, the specific covenant that the Israelites were under, but all of humanity has been given free will. The ability to choose who they are going to listen to and whose instructions they are going to follow. When we boil it down to the foundation, we are given the choice of either trusting our creator or trusting ourselves and the mindset of our culture. When we choose to trust the one that made everything and perfectly understands the best way for us to live, we receive what we truly desire, contentment and purpose. But when we follow the philosophy of self and our culture, we will eventually be discontent and feel a lack of purpose. Instead of allowing us to simply walk unhindered down the road of heartache and loss, God sends us reminders of better ways to live. You know, last week we explored how our conscience, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, and other people 
God uses those to attempt to bring us away from our folly so that way we can focus back in on what is true and good. But unfortunately, just like Israel, we often ignore his call and we continue in our foolishness so that God allows us to then reap the natural consequences of our actions. And and there are endless examples of this. You drink too much. What happens the next day? You're hungover. You continue to drink too much. You're hungover too much. You're drunk too much. You have problems with your relationships. Eventually, you have problems with your health. It's a natural cause and effect. You start lying. People start having distrust for you. You do it enough, you lose relationships. You lose your jobs. If you have a consuming desire for nicer things, you will feel discontent. If that you continually feed that desire, you will eventually have financial problems, potentially problems with relationship. If you get into pornography, it will control your mind, the way that you view other people in the day-to-day interactions. This will lead to problems with relationships and eventually broken relationships, right? The list goes on and on and on and on. Of all the wrong things that you have done in your life, there is a cause and effect, natural consequences, the deeper that we pursue things from a, self, from a selfish philosophy, the more hardship we will face. But God is sovereign over everything. He has the ability to keep his creation from experiencing pain and loss, but he still allows us to suffer. Why? Why doesn't he just sit up there visibly and remove all temptations away from us so we can walk that path without hardship. You know, I believe it's just like, we're just like Israel. He wants to teach us unchangeable truths. Let's look at Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 to get this concept. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children. My child, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? If you do not have that discipline in which all children share, then you are illegitimate and not his children. Moreover, we had human parents to discipline us, and we respected them. Should we not be even more willing to be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplined us for our good in order that we may share his holiness. Now discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, in the Greek, go ahead and leave this one up, Michael. In the Greek, discipline means to Instruct, instruction that trains someone to reach full development or maturity. You know, and we see this in verses 10 and 11. But he disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness, in his goodness, in his perfection. Now, dis- discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, God desires, God's desire in letting us face the natural consequences of our foolishness is so that we can live more like the way he designed us to live, a life full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, generosity, gentleness, self-control, the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of righteousness. He allows us to suffer so that we, we can grow from our suffering. You know, I think there are at least two truths that he desires people to learn from their suffering. The first one, our own selfishness, our own selfish choices lead to heartache and loss. You know, we have seen this since the beginning of humanity. Adam and Eve chose to reject God's truth and the world was broken because of their choice. God allowed the world to stay this way so that mankind could learn the natural consequences of rejecting God and following their own logic and emotion. You know, Israel did the same thing. So God allowed them to lose everything out of hope that they would turn back to him, the one who had given them everything. You know, when we allow when we are allowed to see what naturally flows out of our selfishness, then we begin to understand at a deeper level how, much, how broken we are and how much we need something greater than ourselves. When we allow this understanding to take hold of our minds and emotions, we will have a more, a more permanent and sincere desire to genuinely seek God and his intentions for our lives. When we do this, when we repent, when we say, God, I change my mind, I change my heart, I no longer want to seek what I want, but I want to seek what you want, then we will begin to see the second truth that God wants us to learn. When we allow him to redeem us, our own foolishness can be turned into a greater form of good. And this is where it gets straight illogical. You know, even though Adam and Eve rejected God, even though the Israelites rejected God, God still brought the greatest form of redemption to a broken world through the nation of Israel, Jesus. For the one that repents, changes their hearts and minds and returns to God, their foolishness can be turned into the greatest form of good, the salvation of their souls. And we're going to look more at this next week when we look at the idea of um, redemption coming. But this is also true on a smaller scale, not just our souls. As we experience the consequences of pleasure, of envy, lust, greed, anger, whatever form of selfishness that you happen to choose, as our lives and our relationships feel like they are falling apart from those choices, if we turn to the almighty maker of heaven and earth, openly confess our foolishness and seek his mercy, then his goodness will reign upon us. You know, we most likely will still have to deal with the tangible consequences, whether that's your finances, your health, court systems, relationships, right? It's just the natural consequences that we have to deal with. But God will immediately begin to renew your minds and reform our belief systems through which our lives will be restored. You know, I love the last two verses in Hebrews 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight, your, straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This idea of our choices of how we handle our hardship has so much impact on everything that will follow those choices. I think about that idea of just like drooping hands and weak knees. You're just like overwhelmed by sorrow and guilt. And he says, 
Lift yourself up. Strengthen those knees. Make straight the path for your feet, right? Walk down the straight and narrow path so that what is lame, right, you're already down and out, will not be broken entirely, but rather will be healed. Here, let me give you an example. Quite a few years ago, a good friend of mine got caught up in some poor choices with lust. You know, the consequences were significant. He lost his job and his reputation was scarred. But early on in his state of punishment, he lifted his drooping hands and strengthened his weak knees. He walked down that straight path and turned wholeheartedly to God. Six months after his life imploded, he told me that his relationship with God and with his wife were the strongest they had ever been. How is that logically possible? You cheat on your wife, you break the commandments, everything falls apart, and six months into it, your relationship with your wife is stronger, your relationship with God is stronger. In the midst of whatever consequence you are facing, significant or minor, when you genuinely turn to God and seek his good, he will use your scars to bring about more goodness in your life than you thought was ever possible. The trials of life can render, render the soil fertile, producing a time of significant growth. Or it can harden a person, leaving them bitter and disillusioned. You know, I believe a major factor, if not the most important factor, is a person's view on God. When you examine the God of the Bible, you will see that he desires to help you, to pour his goodness upon you, never wavering in that desire regardless of what you have done. In these types of situations, people are experiencing the natural consequences of their choices. It is not due to God's disfavor. If you don't believe that, come and talk to me afterwards, and I will show you passage after passage that shows God's unending love and his desire to restore the ultimately broken people. God is waiting for people to turn back to him so that he can restore them to an even greater state than they were in before. You know, we're going to take some communion right now. The idea of communion is it's a tangible sign or tangible evidence of Jesus' body and his blood. A chance for us to have a sensory engagement with a philosophical or a mental, emotional idea. You know, and I encourage you as you do this tonight to really focus in on how much God showed you mercy and poured his grace upon you even in your most sinful state. You know, there's a verse, Romans 5, 8, that really well sums this up. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 